before we jump into the most recent episode of Jungian Ever After, I just wanted to let you all know that we have reopened applications for the Jungian Psychotherapy Program and Jungian Studies Program. We've gone through the first wave of applications, and there are a few spots left, so we're reopening applications. So if you were interested in the program or thinking about it but not sure if you were going to apply, um, there are only a few spots left, so I'd recommend applying as soon as you decide you want to. Also to let you know, for this next year, it's going to be a hybrid program with most of the weekends in person, um, three or four of the weekends um, over Zoom, so that will help people with traveling costs and things like that. If you have any questions about the program, just email young at youngchicago.org. Um, also, there's a link to the program's page in the show notes where you can read more about it and apply. Thanks. Before we get started, I just wanted to let everyone know that we have a trigger warning here for rape. So if that is a subject that's going to cause you to become upset, you may want to skip this episode. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Jungian Ever After, a podcast about fairy tales through the lens of Jungian analysis. I am your host, Raisa, and joining me as always is my co-host and Jungian analyst, Dr. Adina Davidson. Today we're going to discuss another well-known tale, which is Little Red Riding Hood. And this is one that I think has many different versions to the point that I don't really remember the ending so well as the parts leading up to it. We have a young girl who's sent sometimes by her mother to see her grandmother and, and deliver some food out in the forest, but she's told not to stray from the path and gets distracted, encounters this wolf who then impersonates her grandmother, tricking both of them and devouring the little girl. And then it's really the ending that seems to change the most. Yeah, I think that's really true. I looked at one book which has about 40 or 50 different versions of Little Red, starting with the Perot, which we're not going to be reading, but which is kind of the first written down version of Little Red from the late 17th century. Really, this book followed it right up through the end of the 20th century. And it really is the ending that keeps changing in all of the versions. In the Perot, it's the hunter all by himself who saves Red and her grandmother. Grimm, who read Perot and based mostly on Perot, but also went around to the oral tradition, gives Red and her grandmother much more agency. Well, we don't want to spoil the end now, do we? So I think without further ado, let us jump into today's story. Little Red Cap from Household Tales by Brothers Grimm Once upon a time, there was a dear little girl who was loved by everyone who looked at her, but most of all by her grandmother, and there was nothing that she would not have given to the child. Once she gave her a little cap of red velvet, which suited her so well that she would never wear anything else, so she was always called Little Red Cap. One day, her mother said to her, 
Come, little red cap. Here is a piece of cake and a bottle of wine. Take them to your grandmother. She is ill and weak, and they will do her good. Set out before it gets hot, and when you are going, walk nicely and quietly, and do not run off the path, or you may fall and break the bottle, and then your grandmother will get nothing. And when you go into her room, don't forget to say, Good morning, and don't peep into every corner before you do it. I will take great care, said Little Red Cap to her mother, and gave her hand on it. The grandmother lived out in the wood, half a league from the village, and just as Little Red Cap entered the wood, a wolf met her. Red Cap did not know what a wicked creature he was, and was not at all afraid of him. Good day, Little Red Cap, said he. Thank you kindly, wolf. Whither away so early, little redcap? To my grandmother's. What have you got in your apron? Cake and wine. Yesterday was baking day, so poor sick grandmother is to have something good to make her stronger. Where does your grandmother live, little redcap? A good quarter of a league farther on in the wood. Her house stands under the three large oak trees. The nut trees are just below. You surely must know it, replied Little Red Cap. The wolf thought to himself, What a tender young creature! What a nice, plump mm, mouthful! She will be better to eat than the old woman. I must act craftily so as to catch both. So he walked for a short time by the side of Little Red Cap, and then he said, See, little red cap, how pretty the flowers are about here. Why do you not look around? I believe, too, that you do not hear how sweetly the little birds are singing. You walk gravely along as if you were going to school, while everything else out here in the wood is merry. Little red cap raised her eyes. And when she saw the sunbeams dancing here and there through the trees, and pretty flowers growing everywhere, she thought, Suppose I take Grandmother a fresh nosegay. That would please her, too. It is so early in the day that I shall still get there in good time. And so she ran from the path into the wood to look for flowers. And whenever she had picked one, she fancied that she saw a still prettier one farther on, and ran after it and so got deeper and deeper into the wood. Meanwhile, the wolf ran straight to the grandmother's house and knocked at the door. Who's there? Little Redcap. She is bringing cake and wine. Open the door. Lift the latch. I'm too weak and cannot get up. The wolf lifted the latch door flew open, and without saying a word, he went straight to the grandmother's bed and devoured her. Then he put on her clothes, dressed himself in her cap, laid himself in bed, and drew the curtains. Little Red Cap, however, had been running about picking flowers, and when she had gathered so many that she could carry no more, she remembered her grandmother, and set out on the way to her. She was surprised to find the cottage door standing open. And when she went into the room, she had such a strange feeling that she said to herself, Oh dear, 
How uneasy I feel today, and at other times I like being with Grandmother so much. She called out, Good morning, but received no answer. So she went to the bed and drew back the curtains. There lay her grandmother with her cap pulled far over her face and looking very strange. Oh, grandmother, she said, what big ears you have. The better to hear you with my child, was the reply. But grandmother, what big eyes you have, she said. The better to see you with my dear. But grandmother... What big large hands you have. The better to hug you with. Oh, but grandmother, what a terrible big mouth you have. The better to eat you with. And scarcely had the wolf said this than with one bound he was out of bed and swallowed up Redcap. When the wolf had appeased his appetite, he lay down again in the bed, fell asleep, and began to snore very loud. The huntsman was just passing the house, and thought to himself, Oh, the old woman is snoring. I must just see if she wants anything. So he went into the room, and when he came to the bed, he saw that the wolf was lying in it. Do I find thee here, thou old sinner? said he. I have long sought thee. Then just as he was going to fire at him, it occurred to him that the wolf might have devoured the grandmother, and that she might still be saved, though he did not fire, but took a pair of scissors and began to cut open the stomach of the sleeping wolf. When he had made two snips, he saw the little red cap shining, and then he made two snips more, and the little girl sprang out, crying, Ah, oh, how frightened I have been! How dark it was inside the wolf! And after that the aged grandmother came out alive also, but scarcely able to breathe. Redcap, however, quickly fetched great stones with which they filled the wolf's body, and when he awoke he wanted to run away, but the stones were so heavy that he fell down at once and fell dead. Then all three were delighted. The huntsman drew off the wolf's skin and went home with it. The grandmother ate the cake and drank the wine which Redcap had brought and revived. But Redcap thought to herself, As long as I live, I will never by myself leave the path to run into the wood when my mother has forbidden me to do so. It is also related that once when Redcap was again taking cakes to the old grandmother, another wolf spoke to her and tried to entice her from the path. Redcap, however, was on her guard and went straight forward on her way, and told her grandmother that she had met the wolf, and that he had said good morning to her, but with such a wicked look in his eyes, that if they had not been on the public road, she was certain he would have eaten her up. Well, said the grandmother, we will shut the door, that he may not come in. Soon afterwards the wolf knocked, and cried, Open the door, grandmother. I am Little Red Cap, and am fetching you some cakes. But they did not speak or open the door, so the gray beard stole twice or thrice round the house, and at last jumped on the roof, intending to wait until Little Red Cap went home in the evening, and then to steal after her and devour her in the darkness. But the grandmother saw what was in his thoughts, 
In front of the house was a great stone trough. So she said to the child, Take the pail, red cap. I made some sausages yesterday, so carry the water in which I boiled them to the trough. Redcap carried until the great trough was quite full. Then the smell of sausages reached the wolf, and he sniffed and peeped down, and at last stretched out his neck so far that he could no longer keep his footing, and began to slip, and slipped down from the roof straight into the great trough, and was drowned. But Redcap went joyously home, and never did anything to harm anyone. So that was Little Red Cap, as told by the Brothers Grimm. Why don't you uh, kick us off with how we're going to do our analysis here? So there are at least three ways we can look at Little Red Cap or Little Red Riding Hood, as she's known in France and in the United States. I am going to just call her Red or Little Red to avoid controversy. The three ways that came to my mind as I was reading the story and then doing the research for this episode are historical, and then intrapsychic. And intrapsychic is kind of the classical Jungian approach to understanding a fairy tale. In an intrapsychic approach, we see the fairy tale as a picture of a whole psyche, one person's psyche, and each of the characters are different parts of psyche. Some of our listeners might be familiar with a model of therapy called internal family systems which does what is called parts work. Each part learns to talk of the other parts of psyche. Fairy tales, in a way, are an archetypal image of that. Does that make sense to you? Do you understand what I'm saying when I talk about intrapsychic? I'm not familiar with that style of therapy that you mentioned, but I think this is familiar enough in terms of just how we've broken down some of the previous stories that we've covered. Okay. All right, great. So then the other way we can look at them is interpsychic. What does the story say about the relationships between people in Little Red, particularly in the context of sex and violence? And then the historical kind of works its way through both in some ways. Well, this is a Jungian podcast, so I imagine we're going to be focusing on sort of the intra and inter-psychic readings. I think that's my plan. <laughs> So we can start out looking at Little Red from a classical Jungian perspective. From this perspective, which is really most fully articulated by my shiro, Marie-Louise von Franz, fairy tales are collective stories. They give us a picture of human psyche, of the parts of us that are common to all of us, and how psyche develops. Each of the characters in a fairy tale is a symbol for an archetypal aspect of psyche. And the story itself shows us how psyche grows and changes over time. Okay, yeah. So could you maybe give some examples of how those symbols are used within Red Riding Hood? Absolutely. So Little Red herself can be seen as a maiden figure. The grandmother is a crone, an archetypal image. The wolf can, I think, is a symbol for what we might call nature red in tooth and claw. The pure aggression 
in our nature. The forest is generally seen as a symbol of the wild places in Psyche, the places where there is both beauty and danger, but it's unknown. Even the path is an archetypal symbol. It's the way we go in to our own wilderness, our own unknown places, safely, and have a way to also come back out, back into consciousness. I would say if we are going to look at Little Red intrapsychically, it's a little bit problematic because it was so strongly adapted when it was written down by Perot. So to some extent, more than the other fairy tales that you and I have looked at, more than Cinderella or Snow White, it's not a collective story. It's Perot's story. It's a little bit more of an authored story by an individual man. And so there's more of his personal and his historical context in Little Red than we see in some of our other stories. Okay, so whereas we had these different versions that we talked about for Cinderella and Snow White, this one, even though there were some other versions, Perrault really made that his, and then Grimm was so based on Perrault that if, if you take archetypes in some ways, they're archetypes of just Perrault. I mean, our archetypes are always of everyone, but they're more colored by Perrault's personal and historical times than something that we generally work with in that von Franzian intrapsychic way. Okay. But with that said, let's start classically or intrapsychically anyway. In terms of Jungian psychology, we have some very archetypal images in this story. We have the triad of the Great Mother, capital T, capital G, capital M. The divine feminine is always imaged with three faces, the young innocent girl or the maiden, the mother, and the grandmother or the crone. Immediately, these three faces of the goddess or the great mother are placed together in our story. But again, archetypally, the youngest and most defenseless is sent out alone into the woods. She's sent out into the dangerous, uncharted, uncivilized part of Psyche. This echoes, I think, another archetypal story, Demeter and Persephone, where the young girl is out picking flowers, just like Little Red, and that is when the abduction, and in Persephone's case, the rape, and arguably Little Red's case, also a rape, takes place. We also have the wolf, an archetypal image of the wildness inside of us, the wolf is the untamed aggression or the predator who kills in service of her own needs and to feed her pack and her cubs. Yeah, that's an interesting depiction of the wolf that I don't really think shows up in this story just because our two wolves are coded as male. But I really love hearing about the Great Mother, because that's an archetype that I think I could identify even in other media without knowing that it's this thing in, in psychology, because it shows up sort of all over the place. We've got you know, Game of Thrones based on the book series Song of Ice and Fire. 
among their seven deities, they have the mother, the maiden, and the crone, which lined up exactly. I'm also just honestly happy to have a crone here who isn't evil because we've seen in some of our earlier stories with the queen in Snow White, with the witch in Hansel and Gretel, that the crone is not always depicted in a positive light. And I kind of feel like over the centuries, that's been some of the influence of Christianity in terms of how they view the crone archetype. Maybe Christianity, it's certainly a Christianity during and after medieval times. And it really, I think, came to its full expression in the mass witch burnings. I think something was going on in the culture that women having a life that was separate from childbearing and domesticity, that was separate from her relationship to a father or a husband, that became very threatening. Interestingly, Little Red Cap, even though she is a maiden, has a trickster energy and a capacity to use her wits in service of self-protective aggression. For me, she's an image of healing the split between the overly docile but good human being and the untamed nature of the wolf symbol. And I see that split in my work all the time. I see women coming into my office wanting to just be good, wanting to never be angry. They feel comfortable. They feel good about themselves when they're sweet, when they're kind, when they're gentle. And they're really split off from their aggression and very uncomfortable with it. Yeah, I think we see a lot of that in terms of not just women being unable to feel aggression, but with men only being allowed to feel aggression. Mm -hmm. And there's sort of this split and never the two shall meet that you're not masculine if you have feelings of sadness or, or love, right? Even creativity or sensitivity to art or music. Right. Those things are effeminate. But then if you are feminine, you are not allowed to display anger. And as a trans woman, I sometimes feel like it is even more of a cage because anything that would be perceived as aggression and therefore masculine then also becomes this risk of either outing myself or just you know people who may know that I am trans saying that anger I feel is because of that masculine upbringing. And so it's really just this box that becomes suffocating. I think that is exactly true. And I think that it really misses something that Jung made very clear which is that as human beings, we all have all the archetypes. We all have all of the coded masculine and coded feminine archetypes because they are all human. And I think that Little Red is really a nice image of some movement on that split. She may be devoured by the wolf, either anger or sexuality, but she in turn 
overcomes and that can harness her own aggression. Little Redcap is at first completely split off from her wolf nature. She's only the sweet, naive, unguarded parts of Psyche, which are beautiful, but naive and not capable of taking care of themselves. It is only after she is fully consumed, engulfed by the wolf aspect of Psyche, that she can grow into her own power. Yeah, it's a rite of passage in a way, even though it's one that's generally not sanctioned, right? People don't want their kids going off and having either sexual adventures or encounters with alcohol or other dangerous things. It's those experiences with things that are wild and dangerous that take us from child to adult, learn to take care of ourselves, go from maiden to mother, from mother to crone. Yeah, I think that's a great insight, Raisa, and it's really true. It's like somehow it has to be our young, innocent, vulnerable selves that descend into our psychological deep woods. We can't develop and grow into new maturity, into new power without testing ourselves. And we can't test ourselves without danger, without risk. The older part, the more mature parts of psyche are already established and they're too well defended for those kinds of risks. They don't take foolish risks. We have to send the innocent child part of ourselves to the mysterious wilds of psyche. And it is on these perhaps insane adventures that young girls, young women, and the child parts of ourselves can learn our own strength and our own capacity for self-protection and lose their foolish innocence in the process. In this story, like so many of our others, we can see that it is Trickster that is the real agent of transformation. Trickster flips the power from the wolf and the hunter to Redcap and her grandmother. Trickster upends the social order, upends that which is seen to be the powerful to that which is seen to be the powerless. Of course, I should have known it would be our good friend, the Trickster, who we've discussed so much that would bring about this change. You know, when I think about Trickster and wolves, I also think about an animal type and trickster that I very much love, which is the coyote. And coyotes tend to be pure tricksters, at least from the stories that I know. Whereas wolves, it seems, may have a few tricks, but there's something inherently more violent about them. And I'm not, I'm not sure what that's about. It's almost like, yes, they have a few tricks, but they're more straightforward, right? Right. And I think it's because the wolf is primarily a symbol, again, for those straight-up, instinctual, aggressive, and in this case, arguably sexual tendencies. I also think it's because of where the wolf stories and the coyote stories come from, right? Coyote stories are from the Americas and where we have lots of coyotes. I don't know if there are any coyotes in Europe at all. Somebody, perhaps one of our listeners, can look that up and let us know. But there were definitely wolves in the great primeval forests of northern Europe, especially. In the Americas, coyote, human beings cannot be coyote prey. 
no matter how hungry a group of coyotes are, we're just too big for them, right? Wolves, if they're really hungry, they will take down human beings. They will hunt us. And so I think that it makes sense that coyotes were storied as the less terrifying, although still trickster can be pretty darn scary, but also humorous. And wolves were envisioned, again, as this sort of pure, raw aggression. But it's worth noting that actually that wolves are good mothers and they work together in cooperative packs. I mean, that would make sense from sort of actual wolf life where a lone wolf would have a very short and dark. I mean, they're just wolves are pack animals. They're not going to do well alone and they're not going to. So let's explore this archetypal symbol of the wolf a bit more. The wolf was crucial in archaic thinking as representative of the human wild side. And I think we can see that in some of the cultures where people would put on wolf skins as part of religious ritual, that it was a way of taking on our own wildness and our own wild power. Wilderness at the time of the Grimm brothers was not a national park. The wilderness was a place where human beings were not safe, where we were not in control. And the wolf in the Grimm story exploits Red's natural wildness. He exploits her curiosity and her desire for the freedom of the colorful musical woods. The wolf tricks the grandmother and Red and devours them. And it is as they emerge from the belly of the trickster that the crone and the maiden seem to have acquired his trickster energy. And it is after being engulfed in trickster that they are able to protect themselves from aggression. Trickster is the classic way that seemingly powerless people gain power over seemingly undefeatable enemies. Classic myth and fairy tale pattern. David and Goliath, Hansel and Gretel, all of the Hermes stories. All of those are stories that people or gods with less power are able to gain power over that which seems to be undefeatable. And in this story, it's almost like the wolf's stomach is this extra-dimensional portal to trickster or something. Just the way that the wolf sleeps through being cut open and they emerge totally whole and fine and they sew him back up with rocks so that when he wakes up he falls over and dies. It's parts like that that really demonstrate how these are more symbols and not literal or else the wolf would die the moment it was cut open. I love that idea of the wolf's stomach being a portal to something else. I think that's just great. Because Red and her grandmother are fundamentally different when they come out of the wolf's belly than when they went in. They are no longer helpless victims. And there's lots of cues, you just named them, that something magical is connected to being consumed by and entering the wolf's stomach. The interior of the wolf, the interior of the aggressor, is the place where transformation rather than digestion 
Another lens that we can look at the story of Little Red is that of sexuality and violence. One author argues, literary fairy tales were consciously cultivated and employed in 17th century France to reinforce the regulation of sexuality. So what Zipes, that's the name of the author, is arguing is that stories like Little Red were written and told to get young women to behave sexually, not to behave in wild ways. And Little Red's red cap is a cue that this is a story about sex. Red is a symbol for sexuality that's tainted with sin. For example, the Scarlet A, which we were all probably forced to read in 11th grade English. Zipes continues, the eating or swallowing of Little Red Riding Hood is an obvious sexual act, symbolizing the uncontrollable appetite or chaos of nature. When Red goes off the path, she opens the door to the wildness of sexuality, but also to its potential for violence and predation. Zipes says that this is obvious, and I don't know, maybe it's something that's obvious for analysts, but I feel like that's not necessarily the conclusion <laughs> that sort of a lay person would come to right away. I feel like the baseline reading is just, you know, wolves are hungry and dangerous, and so they eat people. Okay, fair, right? But, you know, it's our job as analysts to expand on the obvious, and it and where would that leave us, right? So give us analysts our space to interpret, even if the interpretation seems a little bit extreme sometimes. Sure. So another interpretation, not actually not from an analyst this time, but a feminist theoretician, Susan Brownmiller. Susan Brownmiller argues that Red Riding Hood is a parable of rape. She says there are frightening male figures abroad in the woods. We call them wolves, among other names. And it is teaching us to stick close to the path, not to be adventurous. I would say this is one read and maybe even fairly true to the Perot version. But she leaves out the trickster ending. In Brownmiller's opinion, the sexual layer of the story contributes to reinforce social norms. And in this context, Little Red Cap can be seen as a struggle for sexual domination by men and rebellion by women. Another author argues it is because rape and violence are at the core of Little Red Riding Hood that it is the most widespread and notorious fairy tale in the Western world. Is it? I don't know. Maybe it is for other people. Maybe it was at the time that Zipes was writing, but that has not in my impression at all. I feel like Cinderella and Snow White are sort of the more premier fairy tales these days because they have princesses. I mean, maybe even Little Mermaid, but mm. in sort of the age of Disney, I don't even think they have a Red Riding Hood, at least not one that I'm aware of. No, I think there was a audio. I think there was a Disney audio version of Red Riding Hood. Um, but I agree, the princess stories really dominate the culture right now, and especially Disney. But I actually think that in some very significant ways, we've returned to a time, at least in certain circles, of pushing an agenda of domesticity 
and safety onto young women. I don't think that the fight for women's right to explore, to have adventures, to be our own hero has been won. I think that women are still seen as fragile victims who need protection, often from the most absurd threats. Sadly, all too true. And the point that many versions of Little Red seem to make is, where we have order and discipline, young girls will be safe both from their inner sexual drives and from outer forces. And this makes me kind of think of how our culture talks about and thinks about campus rape culture. And I wonder if we can see the freshman girl going off to a frat party as a modern little red cap. Yeah, as much as it kind of pains me, I think that is a pretty apt analogy Although I transitioned in college before that, I joined a fraternity called Beta Chi. But on my campus, our chapter, Beta Nu, was totally dry house. We did things like improv or board games at our rush events rather than, you know, wild parties. And of course, it's impossible not to be aware of all the like news stories or depictions like the movie Animal House. We all know how awful those are. But for me, like even when I transitioned, the chapter was such a welcoming space to the point that it was almost this sort of guideline for recruiting new members of like, okay, how do they react to RASA? <laughs> you know, are they going to be okay to initiate? But yeah, in most cases, I don't think that's people's experience with fraternities. And I don't, I don't think that campus rape culture is by any means restricted to fraternity. I think that it exists on campuses that have little or no Greek life. But I think that you and I would both agree that we really, really want a world where young women can move freely through the world without being viewed as prey and without having to depend on kindly hunters or the modern version of the kindly hunter campus security, or even their own capacity for being tricksters for safety. Yeah, I think it can never be expressed enough that we shouldn't have to teach women and girls to be safe and that we should just raise people to not rape. But in terms of things we have direct control over, usually the one we can be certain of is that we are teaching our people to be safe because you need everyone else to be teaching people not to rape for that to work. Exactly. And I think in our current time, Little Red can be understood as a conflict between rebellion and freedom. Little Red is constantly mutilated by the wolf and dies, but is also constantly reincarnated. Most stories imply that if Red Riding Hood had not strayed off the path to grandmother's house, to domesticity, she would not have brought about the trouble she experiences. These stories imply that Red Riding Hood has the responsibility for the wolf's predatory acts. It's really somehow her fault that the wolf tricks her and eats her and her grandmother. I think this has very direct connection to how we think about the threat of rape both in the 18th century and now, right? 
women have responsibility to keep ourselves safe. There's an unspoken but universally understood curfew on women. Don't walk alone at night. Don't go to certain places or certain streets. Don't get drunk. This universal curfew doesn't tend to apply nearly as strongly to men. I would say, having been on both sides, this is 100% true. As far as I know, there's not really any kind of feminist pushback against being escorted to a car, driven home, etc., because it just feels like a necessary safety precaution that we all accept and instill in people. And we may universally want to protect kids in this way, even our sons, but once you hit college age or so, there's a pretty stark contrast between men and women in terms of the ability to move around freely at night. And I think this is really articulated in the little red fairy tale. Red has always been used as a warning to girls, don't get out of line. But it also shows by how, by trickery and using her wits, she can defeat the wolf. It's leaving the safe, protected path that really gets Red into trouble because that gives the wolf time to get to grandmothers ahead of little Red and devour grandmother. The crone then is gone, and when little Red arrives at her grandmother, she immediately feels frightened. Her instincts warn her of danger. She ignores them and engages in conversation with the grandmother, the wolf. My, what big ears you have, what big eyes you have, etc., etc. This ignoring of an instinctual knowledge of danger, I think, is very true for women and perhaps for men also. We walk into situations knowing mm, this is not good at a very deep level, but we sort of overtalk ourselves. No, you're making too much of it. It's not that bad, et cetera, et cetera. When we read Little Red, and we see her overriding her instincts, we want to scream at her naive foolishness. So I wanted to end this podcast um, with the James Thurber version of Little Red from 1939. Because even though it's almost 90 years old, it is prescient about the ways women's place in society is changing, and it's funny. Yeah, I could hardly believe that this is from 1939. It sort of feels like something more of the 90s or early aughts. But uh, it's a, a very fun, short little story. One afternoon, a big wolf waited in a dark forest for a little girl to come along carrying a basket of food to her grandmother. Finally, a little girl did come along, and she was carrying a basket of food. Are you carrying that basket to your grandmother? asked the wolf. The little girl said yes, she was. So the wolf asked her where her grandmother lived, and the little girl told him, and he disappeared into the wood. When the little girl opened the door of her grandmother's house, she saw that there was somebody in bed with a nightcap on. She had approached no nearer than twenty-five feet from the bed when she saw that it was not her grandmother, but a wolf. For even in a nightcap, a wolf does not look any more like your grandmother than the Metro-Goldwyn-Lion looks like Calvin Coolidge. So the little girl took an automatic out of her basket and shot the wolf dead. Moral, it is not so easy to fool little girls nowadays as it used to be. 
a very American take there. I don't know where else the little girl would have a semi-automatic or automatic in her basket. In her picnic basket. <laughs> but that is going to wrap it up for episode nine. Thank you all for listening. Our intro-outro music is a sample of Spring Movement One Allegro from The Four Seasons, composed by Antonio Vivaldi and performed by John Harrison and the Wichita State University Players. You can find the full version at freemusicarchive.org, link in the show notes. And if you like what you've been hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or your podcast feed of choice, as it really helps other people find the show. This show will always be free and available to all, but if you would like to monetarily support the show, you can now do so at coffee.com slash Jungian Ever After. That's ko-fi.com slash Jungian Ever After. Also, Dr. Adina Davidson is a certified Jungian analyst who offers telesessions. You can find out more about her practice at adinadavidson.com or her Psychology Today profile. We'll be with you again next time, but until then, we hope your month is filled with exploring the worlds of imagination and storytelling. Thank you.